Welcome back and a happy new year. And we all hope that you had a great Christmas break. George and I would like to thank you for listening to us throughout 2023. And we absolutely promise that 2024 is going to be even bigger and better with our Rash Decisions podcasts. For some of these, we're going to be joined by special guests, bringing even more tips and advice to you on dermatological conditions. And don't forget, this year, we'll be bringing our podcast to you even more regularly. So yes, we are releasing an episode every other Tuesday morning. We're starting this year with emollients everywhere. Which one to choose? I'm Dr. Roger Henderson. I'm a GP with a long-standing interest in this particular area of health. And I'm Dr. George Moncrief. I was also a GP, but I've now retired from my practice. I've had a long-standing interest in skin health, and I was the past chair of the Dermatology Council for England. Now, in this podcast, George and I are going to be talking about which emollient to choose for your patient to achieve the best outcome. And it's the third of three podcasts where George and I have been talking about all things emollient-related. And if you were with us for the first two, First of all, thank you very much, and I hope you enjoyed them. And secondly, we do hope that you found them helpful in your practice. So, first of all, George, I suppose complete emollient therapy, I think, is probably a good point to start this little chat. The need for the daily use of emollients, but not necessarily just on the part of that skin, which is particularly dry, to go a bit further afield. So what is really CET, or complete emollient therapy, that we should be thinking about with our patients? Well, it was a term first described by Professor Mike Cork from Sheffield, and he wants to emphasize the importance of using an emollient as a soap substitute rather than soap in other words so you wash with a sophisticated leave-on emollient to treat the whole skin in the original uh, complete emollient therapy he talked about bath oils as well as the third wing but bath oils have rather sort of moved out of um, practice in recent years largely because of the bathe study which i could go into but it, uh, i'm not sure i entirely agree with all their findings but we don't tend to go for bath oils in the same way as we used to so that's what complete emollient therapy contains so if a patient comes and sits in front of me often with a dry skin problem that isn't getting better one of the first things I do, rather than sort of jumping straight in to try and prescribe something, I actually ask that patient which emollient they've been using, if any, how much they've been using and how often they've been using it in order to help develop an accurate treatment plan. We really have to understand our patients about the quantities and the frequencies of emollient use, one that may, they may be using or not. And secondly, I suppose, how much they're prepared to use. We mustn't assume that if we say to a patient, oh, go and use you know, a long-standing uh, a leave-on emollient and then top up several times a day, they may, may have the time or inclination to actually even do that. It's, it's quite a big ask, isn't it? And, and it's much easier to put an emollient on when you're undressed. So to put it on after your bath or your shower once a day is a very straightforward thing to do. But to ask somebody to, to put it on throughout the day when they're at the office or driving a car or shaking people's hands or doing other things is quite a big ask, isn't it? So that's really where I think the sophisticated ones should come in, that you can put on once a day and you know that will look after their skin until they need to do it 24 hours later. 
But yes, I think it's so important to ask patients what they're already doing. And if they're doing things that are harming their, their skin, like using soaps, then to talk to them about that. But also to find out which emollients they're using and which ones they like. No point us saying this is the best emollient, and it might well be the best emollient, but if they don't like the feel of it, the, the look of it, the smell of it, or the way it's packaged, they, they won't use it. So we need to make sure that we prescribe things that are, that are going to be used. And the best way of finding that out is to let the patient be involved in that choice. Absolutely. And, and, and I'm quite a fan of using, for example, dummy inhalers when I'm speaking about asthma with patients and showing them how to use um, an inhaler or asking them to show me how they're using their inhalers. And that can be really quite instructive when you see them using them like perfume. You don't have the questions you, you, you don't know. But in my drawer, I do keep um, a, a variety of ointments that show them different types and they can sort of feel the types that they use and just to spend that extra little bit of time i know time is worth more than gold in our surgeries but spend that extra little bit of time at the outset to get the right emollient for them that they're happy with that pays off in spades in terms of long-term compliance and reducing them coming back to you because they haven't liked using that moisturizer so that's certainly one of the message i'd want to get across today take that little bit of time at the outset with your patient that first consultation get that right and you save yourself so much time in the future and I think this is where Apriderm, our sponsors, have really come up with a brilliant idea because they have the Apriderm Emergent Starter Pack, which we can prescribe. If your patient's paying for their prescription, they have to pay four prescription charges. So it might be cheaper for that patient just to buy it from the pharmacy. But many of our patients are little children or older people for whom prescriptions are free. And they can take that away. It will actually give them four little tubes, which can be quite useful for keeping in the car or their handbag. But they can try those out and then come back to you and say, this is the one that I like. This is the one that I would use. And they've used it for a, for a few days and they've discovered that this one's too greasy. That one, they don't like it for whatever reasons, or this one they do particularly like. So the Apriderm emollient starter pack, I think, is such a great idea. That, that reminds me, and we haven't touched on this in the previous podcasts, staining. This isn't perhaps as much of a problem as it used to be, but there was a problem with patients using ointments and moisturizers and emollients that could significantly stain clothing, and they really weren't happy <laughs> with us um, when they would put this on, on, and their white shirts then, you know, had to be scrubbed to try and get clean again. That can happen, but it is less of an issue than it was, isn't it? I haven't seen it recently, but yes, it's that sort of problem that is can definitely put a patient off an emollient and they then just won't use it and they won't get the benefits. Yeah, and we should just remember that if you are prescribing, you soon learn the ones that can stain. As I say, I think we use, that, we use those type less and less. Again, we touched on this, I think, in the last podcast, but it's always worth getting this message across repeatedly. Prescribe enough. Please prescribe enough emollient for your patient and also explain why to them they are going to need that amount. And also, in my experience, 
make sure the pharmacist knows that you are prescribing the right amount. There is nothing more embarrassing than a patient coming back saying, well, the pharmacist isn't going to give me all this. He says, I don't need this much. And then that you get into real sorts of wars of words with patients. It never ends well. So just always prescribe the right amount. Little your aid memoir from your experience, George, what should we be using in terms of our thinking with prescribing quantities here? Well, Certainly in atopic eczema, Nice pointed out that you'd expect a child to get through 250 grams per week. And an adult, we can almost certainly say, would need at least twice that amount. That's, that's a whole 500 gram tub, a whole one every week for an adult. So if you've got an adult with quite widespread eczema, I'm talking about four of those per month. And if I'm giving them a two month prescription, that's eight is the sort of quantities that I'm thinking of when I'm prescribing emollients. Once you know that the patient likes it and will use it, and if they're going to get the optimal benefit from an emollient, and there have been many studies, I've published a couple of studies, Cochrane have done reviews that demonstrate that appropriate use of an emollient reduces overall health costs because the patient's eczema gets better, they have less appointments with doctors, they have less eczema, they're using less steroids. And in the paper that I showed, not only were they using less topical steroids, they were using less antibiotics. So it really is a win. You're using a very safe agent. We talked about fire risks last time, but apart from that, or slipping in the bath, there's nothing much safer you could prescribe than the emollient. And if it's reducing the costs of healthcare at the same time, it really is a win. Yeah. In practical terms, so we've Happy with the choice of our emollient we've given our patient. They've gone off. They've been shown how to use it. They're quite happy. You then just don't sort of hope, keep your fingers crossed, that they're fine because you haven't seen them again. How often would you normally review a patient that you've commenced on a new emollient just to make sure they're happy with it? I mean, these days, obviously, post-COVID, you can pick up the phone or drop them an email. But how often should we just keep in touch whatever way we choose with that patient? That's a very interesting question, isn't it? Because I think majority of time with things like eczema, we, I would say I'm critical of general practitioners because we tend to let the patient dictate that. They tend to come and see us when they're having a flare. We manage the flare and then we leave them to get on with it. We don't talk to them about flare prevention or general skin care and, and how to prevent things getting worse again. Ideally, I'd say, my GP colleagues are probably going to fall off their chairs when I say this, but ideally once a year, I think it'd be reasonable to, to review things. If you just start somebody on a moment, not a bad idea just to follow it up a few months later to say how you're getting on with things and are you doing all the things I recommended. But we've got busy lives. We've got a lot to do in that time. But ideally, seeing somebody a year later to renew and review their prescriptions in a perfect world, I would say to patients, if I'm talking to them on the phone, or if they come to see me, bring everything that goes on your skin with you in a large carrier mm. bag. The washing up liquid you use, the shampoo, the conditioner, what you're washing your skin with, everything that goes onto your skin, just bring it along and we just look through it all and uh, make sure they're not doing anything that's causing more harm. No, I think that's absolutely sensible. My sort of 
final line to them is usually, if you're happy, I'm happy. Yeah. If you're happy, come back to see me in a year just to make sure everything is fine. If you're not happy, give me a ring or let me know. It doesn't mean they have to come back and see me, but give me a ring. But the point is no patient ever comes and rucks up in front of you in the surgery uh, using emollients just to say, I'm really happy with my emollients. Thank you very much. And then goes away. They've turned up to see you because something is not working. Exactly. And something, yes. is, and, and something is wrong. So we're sitting with our prescription pads. Uh, I've got a patient that needs an emollient. And I'm thinking we should be thinking very simplistically, simple creams or gels, simple emollients, sophisticated emollients. And it might be worth just spending a few little minutes sort of looking at these different types to see what might suit some people and might not. So the simple creams, you know, back in medical school days, I was taught if it's wet, put a cream on it. If it's dry, put an ointment on it. And it was almost sort of the sum of my dermatology training. <laughs> so simple creams, what are the sort of ones that you would be thinking of using and, and why? Well, let me first of all say I wouldn't accept the invitation to do something that's sponsored by a company unless I already like their products. And so sure. we're being sponsored by Acroderm and I'm mentioning their products not because they're sponsoring me, they're sponsoring me because they know I like their products. But when I choose a soap substitute, simple emollient, cost is probably the, uh, the, the front of my mind as the main thing. I want yeah. it to be a re-greasing agent. I want it to be pH buffered, but it's going down the drain. So I'm looking at cost. Now, this is where some of the, I think, false savings come in. So we have things, for example, which, which come in mayonnaise-type tube bottles. The problem with the pump dispensers, the pump itself costs close on £2.50 just the pump. So if you take mm -hmm. that out and have a mayonnaise type tube, which you just squeeze things out, the problem with that is it then draws air back into it. It's not an airless pump system. Therefore, they need preservatives and things that will stop it from smelling and so on. And these themselves, the preservatives can give a chemically smell and they can sting. They often contain high concentrations of alcohol. So I'm thinking here about things like Epimax. Yep, it's massively less expensive or massively cheaper, but a lot of patients will find it stings even when they commit, uh, they, they, they're using it as a soap substitute and it's mixing with water. So I'd be looking at something towards the lower end of the range. And then you've got things like Acroderm gel, which is less than four pounds. And that's very hydrating. It's actually more hydrating than the cream. And of course, like the whole Aproderm range, it's suitable from birth. And interestingly, it's about as hydrating as an ointment. And I think it's great. But any of the cheap ones, E45 can be used as a soap substitute. Yes, Epimax can be. You can use Isomol or etc. They're all sort of around that sort of price, three pounds to four pounds range. But cost is significant. I'd prefer though an airless pump device, which can sit in the shower, you can just pump it out and then you can wash with that. And these other options like etc. and Isomol, yes, they're cheap, but they are in squeezy containers, which isn't so good. Yeah, and do those principles apply across the board for what I would call the simple emollients rather than sophisticated ones? Those points would still stand. Yeah, I think patients have less concern about preference with a soap substitute. So I'm very clear I'm prescribing this is a soap substitute, this is your leave on. I think most patients would accept what they have as a soap substitute, you know, that cost is the most important factor there. Yeah. Now, we touched previously on the sophisticated emollients with the add-in 
ingredients. Again, are there any particular flavors which you find you're using quite a lot in, in your practice, for example, people with itching or painful skin? Well, interesting, in urea at 5% is anti-itch. But by the time you get up to 10%, it, the way in which urea works at higher concentrations is the proteases that break down the cornea desmosomes don't work unless they're in a soluble state. And so high concentration urea is working by activating the body's natural proteases. But right down at 5%, so for example, in Balneum, you've got 5% urea. That is naturally antipruritic. So that's very useful. But if it's yeah. more unpleasant itch, then I'm thinking about things that have got a Laura Macrogol. That's the Balneum Plus. The difference between Balneum and Balneum Plus is that Balneum not only has 5% urea, it's got some ceramide in it. When you add the Laura Macrogol, you take out the ceramide. So it's not as good in the emollient or E45 itch relief, which is identical. And then we've got things like menthoderm, which contains menthol, which has a soothing, cooling agent as it's put onto the skin. So those are the things I think about for my patients with itch on the skin. But when I'm thinking about a sophisticated emollient, patient choice is forefront of my mind. They need to be given and make sure that's an informed choice. And so I, I do want to direct them to some of the emollients that I might be more happy to prescribe. And the things that come into my mind are the pump. I want a pump that delivers a precise amount of emollient each time. So I know the patient knows what they're getting. It needs to be an airless pump if possible. And you want a pump that doesn't leave a lot of waste. So, for example, I love the contents of Aveeno. It's, to, it's, it's one of the nicest emollients I know. Lovely 24-hour or so duration. Really popular with patients. A very nice, sophisticated emollient. But the problem with the vena is when you pump it, you can get no more out of it eventually. When there's still just over a quarter left in, in the bottle. And then what do you do? Do you unscrew it and put that into other containers? Risk of getting it contaminated and not knowing how long it's been there for and so on. Not great. When you've got alternatives, which include the Aproderm colloidal, which I particularly like, I cannot tell the difference between this and Aveeno when it's on my skin. My wife says it smells slightly different, but I can't detect a difference. It looks and feels and texture and color and everything identical to Aveeno. And this comes with a pump that leaves virtually no residue at all, a couple of percent of it's left behind. And it's a sealed container. You can't get in there, so you can't contaminate it. So those are the sort of things that I'm looking at. Yes, I occasionally want to use something. I, I do the dermal range of double base, but they're not airless. But they're a very mm. clever device. That at the bottom of the bottle is just rounded, and the, the suction pump goes right down to the bottom of that. So there's virtually no waste with those. They're not, they aren't airless. Some of those patients are prepared to use an, an, an ointment last thing at night. They don't mind having very greasy skin then. So then I would talk to them about the, the ointment choices. Ointments, I think, are in two groups, really. They're the water-missable ointments that have got things that make it possible to mix that ointment with water. So that's things like Xeroderm, Hydromol, and Epiderm. Epiderm and Hydromol are identical, absolutely identical. This one's put into a pre-warmed pot, and so it looks creamier, and that's the epiderm and one's put into a cold pot and that's hydromol and it looks a bit more greasy. They're both made with yellow soft paraffin which makes it look a bit yellow and probably could stain a bit more. Whereas the xeroderm which is a bit cheaper and I think just around about four pounds and 
that uses white soft paraffin. And so my favorite water miscible ointment is Xeroderm. For the more greasy ones, which is all the others, if you put those on your skin, water will just wash off. It's, it's like putting lard on your skin, it's very greasy stuff, but great to put it on last thing at night. And the, the lovely thing about this, Aperda is it's a brilliant suggestion. They put two spatulae in the lid. And yeah. so if nothing else, there's a subliminal message to patients that you shouldn't stuff your fingers in there because if you put your fingers in there, you will contaminate it within a week. So you can use the spatula to take it out and then you can wash and dry that spatula in between uses. Keep your fingers out of these tubs. You mustn't put your fingers into a tub. Really helpful and lots of food for thought So just very quickly, there's another one. There's so many I like and they just littered with choices. A really lovely one is double base once. Have you come across that? Oh, I have, yes. Is in that yellow thing. It's the same packaging and same pump dispenser design as in Double Base and Double Base Day Leave. But it's really lovely, intended to be once daily. And it's got twice the hydration of an ointment at 24 hours. So really hydrating. It's got a, a triple actin of, of hydrating agents that really holds water in the skin brilliantly. And I was getting quite bad hands during COVID. And, and so I start, started using that at bedtime. And within two days, my hands were amazing. It transformed my hands. And that's only $3.99, again, to underform. These are not expensive things, but they can transform a patient's lives. I do particularly like colloidal oat as a soothing agent for dry, itchy skins. So, and, and the colloidal oats include Xerovene, Aveeno, Aperderm colloidal. There are about six in total that have colloidal oat. But my favourite is actually the Aperderm colloidal oat because it has no paraffin, it's the least expensive, and it's got a really great pump dispenser. Yes, me too. That's the one I tend to use if I'm using colloidal, absolutely. Aperdam colloidal oat is suitable from birth. The others are only from three months or older. And many state that this indication is under medical supervision. So much more straightforward to prescribe Aperdam colloidal oat. Emollients and steroid sparing. My back of an envelope calculation in my surgery is the ratio of emollient to steroid in order to achieve full benefit is about 10 to 1 because of the steroid sparing effect. Firstly, is that pretty much about right. And secondly, we'll just need to remind people about the slight gap between putting, you know, an emollient and a topical steroid on rather than bunging them on at the same time. I certainly wouldn't criticise your 10 to 1, but I think it's always be 10,000 to 1. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I would rather not put any steroid on my skin if I could help it, and that's another talk. And if I do, I only want to do it for a very short period of time. I certainly don't want to do it for any flare prevention, whereas emollients can be used long term to look after your skin so that you don't get another flare. So I go out of my way to enable patients not to need a topical steroid. That's my goal. I'd rather not be putting a topical steroid on for a variety of reasons. They raise the pH I've been talking about. They degranulate the stratum granulosa. They reduce the number of cell layers in the epidermis. They are blanket immune suppressants, broad spectrum immune suppression. They reduce the collagen levels in the dermis. They aggravate acne and rosacea and so on. So the list is enormous and they cause perioral dermatitis. So I'm going out of my way to, to limit the need for topical steroids as much as I possibly can.
But yeah, if you are prescribing them, then clearly the patient's also going to be using an emollient. And the critical thing is to have that nice interval between the two. And I think roughly half an hour is what I would say. So the ideal thing is a steroid only ever needs to go on once a day. Ideally, it's an ointment at bedtime. So the perfect arrangement is to cover your skin with your emollient everywhere before you get into bed, if you need to put an emollient on at that time. Let that soak in for half an hour and then apply the steroid to the areas where you need it fairly precisely and then wash your hands and then put a bit of emollient on your hands afterwards. Yeah. If I've got a patient, for example, with, I don't know, atopic eczema, who has also got asthma, I often use the same analogy. I say to them, if you are needing your rescue inhaler for your asthma on a regular basis, it means that actually your preventer inhaler is working suboptimally. It's not working as well. You're being suboptimally treated. Same with the skin. If you are needing rescue steroids for your dry skin or skin condition, it's usually because your emollient treatment is suboptimal. We need to be looking at that rather than trying to rescue a flare every time. And patients quite like that. They get that, the whole preventer and reliever analogy that I, yes. I quite like. Yeah. I think it's worth recommending to, to anyone listening. They might want to think about having a chat with patients along those lines. Because we're dealing towards the mild end of the spectrum most of the time. Obviously, if you've got severe disease, you, you haven't got yeah. that option, really. I'm talking about the gold standard here for, for relatively mild disease, which is what we have in general practice for many of our patients. But yeah, when it's more Absolutely. severe, that, that's not an option. There's so many emollients to choose from, probably more emollient choices than almost any other field of, of prescribing that we're involved in, close on 50 that are in the BNF. So I, I looked at these very carefully and worked out what I thought about them based on their ingredients, their cost, their packaging, the pump, uh, and, and, and so on. And I produced a table which Pulse very kindly published, the Pulse reference chart for emollients. It's very much my personal views. I'm not saying it's, it's the right views, it's just my outlook on it, taking those sorts of factors into consideration. So if you go to Pulse and you can get this chart, it's two A pages of A4. And I go through the simple emollients, the sophisticated emollients, emollient ointments, and then it includes some of the emollients that we can't prescribe, which, but which I think are really superb and are likely to come onto the NHS FP10 market in the foreseeable future. You can direct patients to them that are there as well. Now, we've talked a lot about cost, which really is a key point here. And obviously, we're in a, a cost of living crisis as we speak. I think it behoves us all not to uh, forget to remind patients about NHS prepayment options where appropriate. They can be dramatically effective in helping our patients get the uh, medication they need, but we sometimes forget to mention it to them. So I think it's worth always just uh, reminding our patients, you know, because again, the pharmacist will often say to me, a patient will come in with two, three different emollients or, or, or medications on their list and will say which of these is the most important. And certainly I've seen a slight spike in that in recent months. Have you really? It is, it is happening out there. It really yeah. is. Such an important point. It's around about £30, isn't it, for three months? Yeah, it, it, you really only need to be having sort of more than a couple of, um, uh, of prescription meds on a regular basis to be starting to make it worth your while. Yeah. So I think that's a really good point to end this particular podcast on, George. We've had these three podcasts on all things emollient related, and we do hope you've found them really interesting and practically useful. That's an important point. Practically useful when dealing with your patients 
in clinical practice. Roger and I hope you'll join us again for another Rash Decisions podcast when we'll be discussing another important dermatology area. So, as always, until the next time, it's goodbye from George. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>